Welcome to the first edition of the Populous Papers, where rogues and scoundrels gather unlimited motivation and vitality as we beseech the invisible chiefs to help guide you on a journey of subterranean enchantment where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. Hello everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 5 of the Populous Papers. I am your host, Colin Kramer, and by law, because I'm a Jew, it is a requirement that I'm at least a little bit obsessed with money. So, that's what today's show is going to be about. Also, you should know that this particular episode has secret sponsors and we're actually going to be getting a call from one of them a little bit later this is an episode i've been wanting to do for a while there's a lot to it i don't think a lot of people understand what happened with the great recession of 2008 and the bailouts i don't even think people understand what happened in 1929 both were republican great depressions uh, caused by deregulation bubble markets. Both have kind of helped bring us to the situation we're in today. Do you remember the game Monopoly? Lizzie Maggie was a progressive and she invented that game. It was originally called The Landlord, by the way, and Parker Brothers totally ripped her off and created their own Monopoly. That's a whole nother story which I'll save for another time, maybe when I talk about my top 10 favorite board games of all time. But anyway, Lizzie Maggie with The Landlord was making the point that in the end, with this system of predatory, laissez-faire capitalism, only one person can ever win. It's a monopoly, which is a lot like a monarchy. It gets very monotonous. And when one motherfucker ends up owning everything, that creates an us-versus-them kind of divide. Although, every once in a while, a game of Monopoly goes really, really well. You ever had a game go like that? Where, like, every single player is actually doing pretty well? And, you know, no one person has an insane amount of wealth, but nobody's doing that badly either. It's like man, everyone's kind of okay. It's like this upper middle class kind of 90s thing going on. And from my money, the closest thing we've had to something like that, a good game of Monopoly where everyone is doing pretty well, it's uh, the 1950s. I mean, if we could have the economic stability of the 1950s combined with the social justice of today, it would be heaven on earth. Think about it. School was affordable. People weren't going into debt to pay for college. A lot of people didn't even go to college because you could still get a pretty darn good job just with a high school diploma. Only one spouse needed to work. You could buy a house easily, raise kids, put them all through college if you wanted to, take vacations. And these are like just from factory jobs, you know? Most of the workforce was unionized back then. People were doing pretty well and it was the most robust middle class the world has ever seen. And it was artificially created, you know, from decades and decades of land grants, small business loans, farm subsidies. We created that. If we had just left things to their own Darwinian devices, we'd be in a feudal system right now. But 
As Jimmy Carter declared, we are no longer in a constitutionally limited democratic republic. This is an oligarchy, and it's time to take the power back and reclaim our republic. Think of it like a chain. It's only as strong as its weakest link. Do you want to have a chain where like maybe two or three of the links are all nice and shiny and perfect and maybe they're made out of palladium and then all the other links are completely rusted, falling apart. There's no way this thing is going to last, right? Or do you want a chain where, hey, you know what? You can count on every single link to hold up, right? That's stability. That's collectivism. I mean, who wants to be a rich man in a poor country? Then you got the whole Wizard of Oz angle with the yellow brick road, the gold standard. And yeah, in the movie, they may have been ruby slippers, but remember in L. Frank Baum's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, they were silver slippers. And remember that quarters themselves used to represent, they used to actually be a quarter of an ounce of silver. They started chipping away at it. I remember like quarters before 1965 still at least had some silver in them. So if you have any quarters laying around from before that date, they're probably worth something. But um, yeah, basically right now it's just junk. It's just steel. You know, it's play money, monopoly money, right? They're notes of debt. We're just passing around a bunch of IOU notes. So what else did you have in the Wizard of Oz besides the silver slippers representing the silver coins? You had Emerald City, greenbacks. So right there, it sounds like Baum is a proponent of a more diversified currency. Maybe even a full-blown bartering system if you bring some of those poppies into the mix. There's all kinds of different theories as to what Wizard of Oz was really about. I've even heard it said that Dorothy has something to do with Theodore Roosevelt and the original populist movement when it was more of an agrarian thing. And also think about the wizard himself. You know, it's like the Federal Reserve, even though the Federal Reserve didn't exist yet. But, you know, it's like these banking entities behind the scenes. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. It's like market manipulators, right? The magic of um, turning something phony into something oppressive. Makes me sick. So speaking of greenbacks, uh, John F. Kennedy apparently had some issues with the Federal Reserve. And I don't know if this is just another conspiracy theory, but I believe there's something to it. So check it out. Executive Order number 11110. And basically, America was going to start issuing its own treasury notes again and cut out the transnational blood-sucking financial institutions, right? Apparently, Abraham Lincoln had some issues with the, with the global banksters as well. And uh, he wound up shot to death, just like JFK did. So, definite Illuminati. And the crash of 2008, a lot of people don't realize... That $750 billion, that was just an initial figure that was thrown out because it sounded big and it was catchy. We actually wound up handing over closer to $2 trillion taxpayer dollars, and it didn't all go to financial institutions. Remember um, when Dennis Kucinich was at that congressional committee hearing and he was asking Hank Paulson to name 
some of the recipients, some of the beneficiaries of those bailouts, and he would not give even one name. Well, that's in part because they were all European, and also a lot of them weren't even in the financial industry. McDonald's got bailout money. Harley Davidson got bailout money. I really don't think that McDonald's needed any help from us, and I don't think that the well-being of Harley Davidson's business was crucial to keeping the American economy together. All right. Needless to say, those banks were too big to fail. And as Bernie Sanders says, they're too big to exist. We need to break them up, you know, get more state chartered banks, go local, support credit unions. Now, we've seen this movie before. Like I said, it happened in 08. It happened in 1929. And literally, I have seen these movies before, and they're really interesting to rewatch. Check out Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway and... Gene Wilder was in that movie, too. He was great. And, you know, these guys are going around the country bragging about how they're robbing banks. They're heroes because the banks have been robbing the people, right? Taking some of that power back. And check out They Live by John Carpenter. Remember that? When Roddy Piper shows up to L.A. In L.A., by the way, that has surprisingly few skyscrapers. So it's a trip to watch it. But remember what happened? That movie came out, what, 87, 88? And he said that uh, he had to come here looking for work because all the banks went under. And all the bastards that caused the banking collapse through predatory lending and through... uh, betting against the well-being of their portfolios, these guys gave themselves bonuses when they should have been given prison sentences. It's amazing. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, this doesn't mean that capitalism is just inherently evil. No, I mean, when you regulate it, when there's a social component to it, Like Teddy Roosevelt said, business needs to be in the interest of the American commons. Uh, It can be really good and it can be fun. Some people make the Tiger Woods comparison, right? Hey, just because you're never going to be as good as him doesn't mean you can't enjoy a great game of golf and actually do pretty well. And likewise, just because you're not going to be an inside trader on Wall Street, it doesn't mean you still can't make a lot of money trading and investing. And it doesn't mean that you still can't do really well for yourself and have some fun doing it too. One last thing before I forget about the bailouts. Um, At the time, and I wish I had one in front of me, but there were a lot of sort of alternative breakdowns as to how we could have used those initial bailout funds. And man, oh man, would you believe that with $750 billion, you could have paid off every single mortgage in the United States? Really? I mean, imagine what a boom that would have been to our economy. It would have been like injecting a direct stimulus people would have had thousands of dollars to you know start side businesses and invest in little projects put away for um a rainy day i mean you name it give to charities but instead people had their houses taken away from them by the bloodsuckers it makes me sick so 
I've got kind of an interesting perspective because the very first job that I had in life was at a brokerage firm, Capital Management, but we all called it Capital Punishment uh, down there in Dana Point, close to Dana Pills, <laughs> Dana Hills. And it was a really interesting job for a 15-year-old. I came in on Saturdays and kind of helped with mail-outs. I also made phone calls, too. Um, hey, did you at one time have an interest in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange? And um, just the, the absolute recklessness and gambling that led to the recession of 2008. Um, now, there's a lot of different things that we can do right now. And some of them are pretty simple. I mean, look at the stimulus that Colorado is getting from legalizing cannabis. We can definitely generate a lot more revenue by figuring out a better cannabis system here in California. We can divest to credit unions, which we've talked about before. Investing in green energy, especially with an eye toward retrofitting housing with some kind of a reverse income tax or at least buyback bonds so that we can all share in the production of solar energy. And restoring the Sherman Antitrust Act, which came about to prevent corporate monopolies. I mean, it's a serious conflict of interests when just a couple of companies own every single media outlet, and these happen to be the same exact companies that manufacture bombs and toxic pipelines. Do you really think that a news reporter that works for General Electric is going to report on uh, just how dangerous some of these items that their boss is manufacturing is. Uh, uh, boo-boo. So the Sherman Antitrust Act is really important. I think Bill Clinton enforced it once against Microsoft, but besides that, it has not been enforced since the Jimmy Carter era. There's also something taking hold in Los Angeles called the LA Anti-Corruption Act, and I urge everyone to look into it. What it will do eventually, if it becomes law, is provide every voter with two vouchers, I believe, valued at $25 each. So you're able to use these two vouchers on politicians as you see fit. So rather than a local politician having to go raise money from some oil company or some pharmaceutical company, well, um, he can just talk to his constituents or her constituents. Talk to the people, let them know what's up, and they will give you one or both of their vouchers if they believe in you. So the Anti-Corruption Act, keep money out of politics. I think it's something that we can all agree on. Something else that would really help create a new economy is uh, the diversification of corporate boards. You look at what's going on in Germany, and this is very similar to the Antitrust Act in that I believe there was another component to that law which stated that you couldn't make more than like 100 or 200 times what the lowest paid worker makes at um, your company. So let's say you're the CEO of some huge corporate firm. You could only make so much more money than, say, the guy working in the mailroom or the door guy, right? So there were incentives for you to reinvest back into the economy, and that's part of why we had such a stable and expansive economy for so long until Ronald Reagan did away with a lot of those protections. Now, what I was saying about Germany, they have a law which 
states that every single board of directors has to have at least one person from that lowest income bracket. That means on every single corporate board, there is somebody that maybe works in the mailroom or a custodian or a security officer, and you're getting those points of view, and it's so great that we have boards that are actually looking out for the working guy and not just the people who were the recipients of the lucky sperm lottery club and inherited a lot of wealth and never really had to struggle a day in their lives, all right? So diversification of boards is a big one. And also, I love this, worker-owned co-ops. You know, as an apprentice at Stevens College, I was inhaling constant sawdust and I was complaining about sinus issues. And a fellow apprentice by the name of Dylan Penders had told me about this thing called NasoPure. It's kind of like a neti pot, one of those things where you, you irrigate your sinuses and a lot of people claim that they prevent colds. And he said, hey, go to this place called Hy-V. I'm like, Hy-V, never heard of it. And he says, dude, it's where Jesus would shop. And I thought, hey, that's a pretty strong recommendation. So I went on over there and yeah, it was awesome. They had everything and people that work there were so helpful. And it's because they're all part owners. Every single person that works there is part owner of the company. So they're happy to help. That's their place. They own it. It's nothing like, I mean, the dude that I knew that worked over at Kohl's that was always trying to rip the place off. And like he was giving me $200 leather jackets for $20 because he switched the tags with some baseball cap. And he was taking part and he asked for me to help him with something he called Operation Fuck Kohl's. You're definitely not going to hear about any disgruntled employees doing uh, Operation Fuck High V because it's a worker-owned co-op. We need to get more of those in our economy. The world's most successful co-op, I believe, is in the Basque region of Spain. So I'm going to reach out to them and try and figure out more about what they're doing. So there's something else that we tried in Echo Park for a little while, and I believe it's taking off in a few other places. It's called time banking. Basically, you donate an hour of your time, and it sits in a bank. You can claim it back however you want. So maybe you walk somebody's dog for an hour, and now you can trade that hour in later on when you need a haircut. It's not the best thing for when you need brain surgery, but it's a really good alternative to the way we trade and a great bartering system if it's done properly. I think the Echo Park thing uh, got ruined, but who knows? You should try it. I actually have two guests lined up for this episode, so let's get to the first interview. You're listening to The Populous Papers, a podcast for the people. Well, our first guest is someone that I met when I was canvassing for Bernie Sanders in 2016, right around the time of the California primary. Uh, speaking of which, I'm actually drinking out of my Feel the Burn coffee mug at the moment, believe it or not. Um, she and I hit it off, obviously, because we have the exact same initials. Um, she's also just one of the most passionate and dedicated people I know of, a true champion for progressive values, the one, the only, Chelsea Kirk. <laughs> Thank you. 
you're welcome. Thank you for coming on. Welcome to the Populist Papers. Thank you. I look forward to tuning into your podcast um, for, you know, seeing what the next episodes bring. All right. Um, that's great. So tell us a little bit about what you've been working on recently. Sure. Um, well, surprisingly enough, as of late, I haven't really been working on anything other than academic research for school, which ended just a couple weeks ago. Um, but I did help out with the Get Out the Vote for Amelda Padilla's campaign. She was running for school board in the San Fernando Valley, and that election was on Tuesday. Um, she unfortunately lost to a pro-Trevor candidate, Kelly Gomez. Yeah. Um, so part of that, I'm sure you heard, and Steve Zimmer also lost. Right, and um, they were both Bernie-endorsed and union-endorsed candidates, but yeah, they, it looked like the, the charter was, schools were just putting so much money into it. So much money. It was really quite a defeat, and, you know, union, unions have a lot of political clout here in Los Angeles and in California, so it was really quite surprising. Um, and it's, it's sad that the uh, the majority of the board will now swing towards pro-charter. Oh, right. That was pretty um pretty empowering, right, for the charter interest because it really came down to that that majority, right? Oh yeah. Um so but you know oh gosh, that's a whole other thing. Um but <laughs> it is it is really disappointing. And, you know, it's unfortunate that our public funds are gonna be funneled into the growth of the charter schools as opposed to helping to improve our public schools, which need it more than anything. Yeah, how devastating. It was also really, um, you know, being a registered Democrat, I was getting just so much stuff in the mail about those candidates. And, it, you know, they often say, oh, two steps forward, one step back. But I feel like we've we've moved so far back as far as just the, um, you know, the sensationalism and the smear campaigns. It was just like, hey, who can find an uglier photograph of their rival? And it just it's like, come oh. on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was doing door-to-door canvassing, talking to a lot of the residents in that area, and this one woman um, shared all of her campaign, um, you know, propaganda that she got in her mailbox with me, and she's like, is this the candidate that you're, you know, speaking on behalf of? And she was showing me a smear attack for the candidate. I'm like, yes, but look who it's funded by, the Charter School Association. So, you know, a lot of people were really grateful that I knocked on their door. Um, They like the opportunity to talk to someone face-to-face face-to-face and kind of explain to them the issues and you're getting you know negative and positive ads in your mailbox how do you really come to a conclusion right it's all this kind of rhetoric there are not enough resources available to you know send people door to door and hit all the residents so of course the easiest way is to send you know flyers and you know campaign literature that's how we win elections in california we send a lot of uh we inundate people with um campaign flyers Right. And that was something that I loved about canvassing during the Bernie campaign was going out there. It's not like we were just going door to door. You know, we were only knocking on doors of people that had already expressed some interest in the Sanders platform. And we were just there, you know, not asking for money, but just checking in and reminding people, hey, you know, your um, polling place may have moved. Um, Remember, it's this Tuesday, little things like that. And um, and also, you know, there were a lot of people that were kind of undecided about Hillary and Bernie. So it was nice to kind of help nudge them. But really, it was just it was just connecting, you know, and getting to know those people and saying, hey, we're not alone. There's a lot of really smart people out there and we're not going anywhere. Right. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting is just getting off of this local city council campaign. Um, 
you know, a lot of people don't like to do the canvassing. A lot of volunteers feel kind of uncomfortable going door-to-door and talking about issues just because you're friends with strangers. Um, and a lot of people, you know, I got the door slammed in my face more than a few times. Um, but what you realize is when, you, when you're on the right side of the argument, it, it's just so easy to talk to people. You're not, you know, trying to memorize talking points. You're actually just speaking from your heart. And that's how I felt canvassing for Bernie. Um, that's how I felt canvassing for my candidate about tenants issues. And that's how I felt talking about why we need to see money in public schools. Um, again, you know, when you're on the right side of the issue, it's easier to talk about. Definitely. Um, but anyways, you know, I did the GOTV for Melda Padilla, um, but that I was not focused on that campaign. I only helped out at the tail end of it. Um, but now that school's finished, I do plan on being endlessly involved in tenant advocacy. That's kind of where my interest lays. Um, I'll be joining the Los Angeles Tenant Union's Policy Committee. Uh, they need a lot of help right now. And, um, you know, I don't know if you know much about the LA Tenants Union, but it's a really momentous organization focused on um, tenant advocacy. And, you know, the policy committee works specifically to put, you know, to push tenant-oriented legislation through the city council. Um, and recently, you know, one of the most significant things that's happened is the introduction of AB 1506, um, and it's a state bill seeking to repeal the Costa-Hawkins Act. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but the Costa-Hawkins, it's, uh, it's a statewide law, you know, it was enacted in 1995, and it precludes vacancy control in the state of California. Um, and this is a much-needed rent control provision that, you know, has been a demand of tenants organizations uh, for a long time. And so right now that's kind of the focus of the policy committee. Um, they're, you know, focusing on outreach efforts and organizing and support of the bill, um, which isn't going to be pushed through the legislature until 2018. And so that's kind of what I plan to focus on in the coming months. Okay, yeah. I mean, this is a really serious issue. And, I mean, if people aren't already kind of focused on just how overburdened Angelinos are um, with housing. I mean, I remember my mom telling me that her economics classes in the 1960s uh, would kind of get into that, like, okay, you're going to want to budget like 10% of your income for housing. And now, I mean, it's common for people to blow more than half of their paychecks on rent. Uh, Do you have any ideas how we got to this point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people are paying as much as sixty percent. Wow. Also, and if, you know, today, thirty percent. If you're paying more than thirty percent, you are cost burdened. If you're paying any more than that, you're severely cost burdened. Um, but you know what? It's interesting because in Los Angeles, um, you know, the city has kind of been braving this housing crisis since the city's inception. Um, the city has always been seeking ways to solve the housing shortage. I mean, even as far back as the Great Depression, right? Uh, after the Great Depression, you know, the housing construction froze, um, you know, but the need for housing continued to increase as more people were moving into the city. Um, you know, after the war, the housing market became even more overwhelmed as, you know, uh, people were moving back in. But during that time, construction, you know, it wasn't oriented towards housing. Developers were interested in building commercial developments um, and, and not, you know, housing for affordable and low-income people or um, for veterans. Hmm. And this today so that's like a trend that you know it's very entrenched and it started back then and we still see it today a lot of the new construction is oriented towards luxury housing not housing for low income or even moderate income residents um and furthermore we also see the depletion of our current you know affordable housing stock um which you know because of its age is by default more affordable than the new units being added to the market um you know it's interesting if you want me to kind of go on like a 
a historical, you know, tangent, but this kind of started with the Housing Act of 1954. Um, this has kind of been the, you know, focus of my study in school as well. Uh, that's when the kind of urban renewal started, this, like, concept of urban renewal. And, and Bunker Hill is a really interesting example. Um, you know, like back in 1955, Bunker Hill was chosen as, you know, a site for redevelopment um, because the city commissioned a report concluding that, you know, about 60% of its structures were blighted. And at that time, you know, Bunker Hill was a hilltop. It was, you know, mansions and rooming houses. And, you know, this provided some of the cheapest housing for downtown's low-income workers and immigrants and veterans. And when the city approved this plan, essentially 2,000 dwellings uh, were demolished and 12,000 tenants were displaced, um, meaning, you know, 12,000 people lost their homes at the whim of the city deciding that their homes were dilapidated and needed to be you know, raised and redeveloped. Jeez. Um, yeah, and, you know, what's worse is that development actually froze. So Bunker Hill remained um, vacant for, for decades, and it wasn't until, I believe, like 1980 where construction started again, and instead of building housing units to replace, the, you know, the 2,000 dwelling units that it demolished, it was commercial units for office buildings, uh-huh. and those units ended up remaining vacant. Um, because there was no there's no demand for them. So know. we see happening today, even though that started back in the fifties, people today, people who've lived in their apartments for decades, are receiving eviction notice after eviction notice on a daily basis. This is happening to tenants all around the city, telling them that they need to move out because their homes are going to be demolished and turned into, you know, small lot homes, for example. And you know why is this happening? Well, because the owner of the property is interested in turning a profit. The private market can't be relied on to provide affordable and decent housing because the people who participate in this are interested in, you know, making money. Um, and right now in L.A., as a lot more of these neighborhoods become more popular and as real estate is climbing, essentially people who own property are realizing that, you know, renting to long-term tenants who've been here for decades isn't as lucrative as joining the short-term rental industry or leaving the rental market altogether and selling the property. And what this means is that people are losing their homes. And people, because in Los Angeles we have no tenants protections legislation um, that really secure tenants, you just have a lot of displacement happening. And as you're displacing people, you're, you're pretty much removing these once affordable units of housing where people of modest income live and replacing them with more expensive housing, which is directly increasing housing costs or it's you know, causing the surrounding housing costs to increase. And because we don't have any strict rent control, you know, people can have their rent increased to them at unreasonable rates. So when the property owner, property owner realizes that market rate has increased significantly, they're going to just raise the rent because it's more profitable for them. And so this is, you know, families either either swallow the burden and keep trying to pay it, which makes, you know, this can mean 60% of their income, or they move out to cheaper neighborhoods that are usually more economically depressed and have less opportunities. So I guess my point altogether is that, you know, this is a trend we've, we've seen. It began long ago, um, but now it's kind of, it's culminated into this, um, you know, people are more aware of it. It's felt more strongly, especially as it's, it's expanding, you know, outside of downtown to, you know, neighborhoods like Echo Park um, and, you know, even Highland Park, even, even more northeast than that and east Boyle Heights. It's just expanding, expanding, and more people are getting more upset about it. Hmm. 
Yeah, I actually moved to Echo Park uh, right after I finished college in 2006. So it was bizarre being there right at that time. I think Time Out Magazine had published that like Silver Lake was the coolest neighborhood on earth. And just, you know, all of a sudden, the rents started going up. They started doubling. I mean, for businesses, sometimes the rent would be tripled. I know that um, Hollywood has a history of doing that. And um, it seems like this is almost more of a cultural issue that um, maybe it's a failure in getting the message out that, you know, to be successful, you can make plenty of money just as things are. You don't have to, you know, kick everybody out and, and destroy, uh, you know, where I went to college, actually, that community, they've, they've just ripped out all of these beautiful old little houses and they've put in just the cheapest ugliest um yeah you know little apartment buildings and stuff and so i mean how do you think we can get this message out that that it's not just about making a little bit more money we've got historic preservation it's a national security issue i mean if people are kicked out of their places they've got nothing to lose if people are spending all of their money um on on housing there's nothing left over to generate back into into our local economy and uh, these you know, it's so common in Los Angeles for a regular house to be kind of maximized into multiple units. Like, oh, let's turn downstairs into a separate apartment. Let's turn that right. storage unit into its own apartment. And now we've got high density. And I mean, I can't even imagine what's going to happen if like a fire or earthquake happens to some of these units. So, I mean, what do you think we can do just as far as kind of getting the message out that it's not just about profits? Right. I mean, I think that's not just obviously an L.A. issue. I think that's just American values. Um, you know, it's always been about profiteering and, and making money. And um, our communities are very community oriented. Um, you know, everyone's pretty self-interested and, and people are worried about themselves as individuals and about their immediate family unit. And I don't think there's much of a concern for people outside of that. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think that, oh gosh, it's such an uphill battle. Changing people's values is the hardest thing, but it's the most necessary. And I think that what needs to happen in LA is, you know, you can say that, as you, you know, pointed out, if, if people wanting to make a profit and turn a profit and, and, you know, renters lose their home at the whim of a greedy landlord or a greedy developer. But what has really facilitated this is city and state laws. And I think that, you know, if you, if you regulate the market and you um, push for policies that, that limit what, you know, uh, landlords and developers can do, that's when we can start seeing uh, some changes. I think that, you know, we don't have tenant protections legislation. We never really have. Our rent stabilization ordinance is very weak, relatively. Um, and that's why the whole Costa Hawkins repeal is what the LA Tenants Union is really focusing on because what that does is it a uh, vacancy control provision. Right now, if that's repealed, vacancy control provision would be legal. And what vacancy control is, is essentially if I pay $1,000 for my apartment right now and I decide to leave my apartment on my own volition, the next tenant that comes into my apartment would also have to pay $1,000. But the landlord couldn't raise the rent to 1500 which is what's happening right now, and I've seen it in my own apartment complex. My last neighbor was paying like 1100 My new neighbor's paying 1700 Wow. So that's how rent continues to increase. 
Um, but what vacancy control does is it limits. So if I left, you know, the next tenant couldn't pay more than what I paid. And what this does is, so right now what you have is there's an attack on low-income people, mostly non-English speaking and elder, elder, elderly people, excuse me. Um, a lot of landlords are trying to circumvent certain provisions in the rent stabilization ordinance to try to get tenants to move out on their own um, to get higher paying tenants. So you have, you know, landlords using harassment tactics, which they don't think they'll get in trouble for since they're dealing with vulnerable communities, not English speaking people who, you know, don't really exercise their rights or aren't aware of their rights. Um, And they try to get them to move out because there's a profit incentive that exists because of the fact that we don't have vacancy control. If you eliminate that, pro- uh, you know, that profit incentive, there's no reason for the landlord to harass that tenant and try to get them to move out because he's not going to make any more money off of it, off of him. Interesting. So that's why vacancy control is, is a big deal. It's been a big demand of tenants' organizations, and that's why this is it's huge. I mean, it's, I, I couldn't even believe that, you know, a uh, assemblyman would, would put this through or would introduce this. Um, it's really contentious. It was passed essentially because, um, you know, developers pour a lot of money into campaigns in California and in Los Angeles, and they thought that, you know, they used the rhetoric that if you pass rent control, if you if we had vacancy control, it would, um, it would, you know, preclude development. It would slow down development, and there would be no incentive to develop uh, much needed housing. But you know, what you need to realize is that right now the the construction that's happening isn't benefiting anyone except you know developers who are enriching themselves through the process and people who can afford to pay these outrageous rents of the new units that are being added to the market and a lot of these new housing units are um, also staying vacant i mean between 2010 and 2014 44 percent of units that were added to the market um or not added to the market that were constructed remained vacant they were speculative so they're being withheld you know from the market until you know, the best time to release them to get the most profit would be. Um, and again, we don't have any city laws or uh, anything outlawing this. Um, we don't have a vacancy tax. And because of these things, because of city and state law that has essentially created a deregulated housing market, you're going to keep seeing these things happen. You're going to see these profiteers exploiting um, the situation because, you know, there's no regulation. So I think that as, as much as values need to change, Again, 62% of renters in the city or 62% of residents in the city are renters. We far outnumber the greedy landlords, but they have the most political clout because they have the most money, um, you know. Um, but I don't think we'll change their values, um, but we could change city and state policy. I like it. Yeah, I noticed that, um, especially as you were saying around 2010, just all these mega luxury units started going up like those ones um on sunset close to downtown and you can tell just like i mean what is it seven years later now just driving by you can tell it's more than half empty just looking at the balconies and whatnot and it's like what a waste there are so many historic buildings that just needed a little bit of fixing up you know um right and or or retrofitting and i mean most of the people in that area, you know, they're artists or they're young people or, you know, they're just going to go a little bit deeper into downtown and get something more affordable. They're not going to do like these maxed out luxury units. You know, um, it's definitely a, a disconnect between values there. 
Um, I don't want to just um, make it seem like it's us versus them, though, you know, because it should be a win-win situation. Um, I know Food and Water Watch has been doing some great work um, fighting for uh, a 100% clean energy Los Angeles, and I would love to see this. So, so let me know if you have any thoughts, but what Alaska does with resource sharing. You know, they've got their Alaska Permanent Fund, I think it's called, and basically all the citizens, property owners and non-property owners, get to share in the profits that the state makes from the oil. So how do you think maybe we could incentivize property owners and legislators to retrofit, you know, residences so that maybe we can share in the profits from solar production? You know, I'm not um, very familiar with that. I know that California produces a glut of energy, and I'm not very familiar with the Alaska Permanent Fund. Is this fund, do they just get like a tax rebate? Is that how? Yeah, I believe it is, and and that's part of the irony is Sarah Palin is actually the biggest socialist um, probably in the United States, because it's by how many family members you have. I think like you get an extra thousand dollars um, and you're right. It's like at the end of the year. So I basically I think it basically serves as like a reverse income tax. And just I mean, considering that Germany, the cloudiest country in Europe right now, um, they're overloading their electrical apparatus because they're producing so much solar right now. And that came from retrofitting old houses. And it just seems like, wow, we're in the Southwest. We produce so much solar, um, not to mention wave, uh, tidal power, wind power. Um, There's got to be a way we can kind of bring property owners and and the clean energy movement together um, where we can pass some of the savings on to renters. Right. Well, that's interesting. I guess I'm not familiar enough to speak to it. but I will say, I mean, it's, you know, what that looks like is a tax rebate for renters. Um, an interesting comment that um, Rusty Hicks made um, from the union um, was that, you know, despite, you know, our workers, our union members who get good wages, these wages are gobbled up by increasing rent. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, if, a, if an extra additional $500 a month, I don't know how much that's going to help someone. Um, I think that it, I think it is going to have to come down to really regulating the, the market. And right now, our city leadership doesn't have the political will. And that is primarily because the development industry funds these candidates. Mm. I mean, and, and, you know, they do them favors, political favors. But um, that's what I would have to say to that. I think there is a need for a, um, you know, continuous permanent funding source for affordable housing construction. Um, there's not much affordable housing construction going on. It's incredibly expensive, and, of course, for-profit developers aren't willing to do it, and a lot of the nonprofit developers are, um, they don't have enough money to acquire land, um, and they also, you know, receive a lot of community backlash, too. Um, you know, recently in, in Boyle Heights, there's a, a community project, uh, an affordable housing project that, you know, it's in the process of being reviewed and it wants to go up, but it's receiving so much community backlash because people in the surrounding neighborhood, um, a supermarket owner right next door to where the project would go up, isn't happy with the idea of a, um, you know, a housing structure that would serve low income tenants and formerly homeless people. Um, you know, they're using the arguments that, uh, you know, this would be unsafe for the children in the neighborhood. Right. So these are some holes that people don't, realize also when we talk about 
you know, constructing and building as a solution. We, um, the city, you know, Mayor Garcetti loves to talk about how we're going to build our way out of the housing crisis. Um, they never, there's never a focus on preserving affordable housing. There's never a focus on um, getting tenants more protections from landlords. Um, rather, there's this let's keep building and building and building. There's a shortfall of 500,000 units in the, in the county. Um, you know, if we just keep building and, and incentivize developers to build more, we forget that there's all these obstacles and the kind of, you know, housing construction that needs to happen isn't happening because of these obstacles. And no one, you know, it isn't part of the narrative. The city doesn't talk about these obstacles, but it promotes it promotes housing um, construction and mostly because, you know, they're backed by developers. In my opinion, that's what's happening. So, you know, we're going to need to see a shift in city leadership before we see some real changes um, and some real innovation as to how we can solve this issue and kind of unite, you know, property owners and, and, and tenants. What's interesting is that in the, in the history of housing in Los Angeles, you've had these three different stakeholders. You've had developers, property owners, and tenants, and they've all either come together or, or have been against each other. In the past, you know, property owners and developers sided against tenants because they're interested in property values going up. Mm. So property owners like development because they wanted to see property um, value in Los Angeles to increase. Uh, today, what's interesting is that there are a lot of property owners, mostly historic preservationists, who've had the same objectives as tenants in Los Angeles. Tenants are interested in saving rent-stabilized buildings and a lot of property owners are interested in preserving historical buildings, and these buildings tend to overlap because they're older buildings, meaning they're rent-stabilized, buildings before 1979. So you see property owners and tenants coming together, maybe for different reasons, but ultimately seeking the same thing. Um, you know, property owners, a lot of them, mostly the mom-and-pop ones, the lower-tier property owners, are interested in preserving the culture of L.A., um, and they're really fighting back against you know, real estate investors, developers, and the property owners that have exploited Los Angeles because of the tie market um, and, you know, real estate value. You have, you know, these people aren't, aren't, a lot of these people who are, you know, responsible for all these new structures going up, these luxury housing buildings, are people from in the community. And if they were in the community, they know that the community doesn't want these things. Hmm. Um, you know? So what you have is, you know, these industries have monopolized like real estate in Los Angeles, and they just have so much power because they've, they've bought out, you know, mom-and-pop property owners. You have real estate investors encouraging people who own property to cash out so they can acquire more and more property, and they become bigger players in the game. Monopolize. And it's, yeah. Yeah, that's really unfortunate, and it's it, consolidation and in, in, uh, centralization. I mean, that's basically cancerous. You know, when one thing becomes too dominant, um, what do they say? Variety is the spice of life. And it really saddens me. This is something that also came up in our homelessness episode. The way property owners just see these people as, um, you know, like a threat to their profits or something. You know, oh, just send them somewhere else. Um, when we should be looking at, you know, how, how we can serve the community and how we can kind of tackle these issues together when we just centralize all of the people with problems uh, over in one side of town, then we've got Skid Row, we've got one dangerous neighborhood. Whereas if just every neighborhood had one modest facility to help out the mentally ill and or homeless, then, you know, we wouldn't have Skid Row. 
So it right. seems um seems really messed up to me. So so remind us. Right. Oh, go ahead. And that you know that goes back to what you're saying. Like it seems like it's a cultural thing. Um, when I went to one of the first hearings in Los Angeles about the AB 1506, um, assembly members came down to hear what. Um, residents of Los Angeles had to say about the housing crisis and how it's manifested here. Um, you had tenants, and then you had property owners in a, in the same room speaking, you know, going up and speaking their mind. And it was it was just sad to hear what some of these property owners had to say. A few of them, you know, you know, expressed concerns about it's too expensive for me to keep up my building. If you repeal this, and you know, I can't increase rent, I can't afford to upkeep the building. But then most of the people were actually just blurring, like, you know, this is communism. Like, if you feel this, this is communism. Like, don't infringe my my rights and my liberty. Like, I'm allowed to be a property owner. Like, all this rhetoric, this emotive rhetoric that was just totally, you can just tell that these people, you know, probably owned multiple buildings in Los Angeles, probably didn't even live in Los Angeles, had no idea really who their tenants were. They're just figures for them. So that's just really sad, um, and that's what happens when, you know, you don't empower tenants, and you don't, you know, you don't, there's nothing, there's no, you know, tenants see landlords as enemies now just because of what's happened. You know, they're distant, they don't live on the property, they don't visit, they come to collect sex or, or come to evict people, and, you know, it is cultural. Um, but again, I think that because of that, and I don't see culture, you know, cultural values really changing anytime soon. City policy needs to be put in place to help regulate the market and give protections to tenants. Okay. So what's the next step? Should our listeners be calling their representatives and tell them uh, to to support the repeal of, what is it, AB 1506? Yes, absolutely. The bill will not be going through the legislature until 2018. I think that for residents of Los Angeles, renters in Los Angeles, um, joining a tenant organization like the Los Angeles Tenants Union is really important. I mean, it works in the same way as, well, it works like a union works. There are many different chapters, many meetings, and, you know, when you're just calling your representatives, you're still kind of just doing this act on your own, which is also very helpful, but when you're part of, like, the tenants union, you're part of this collective of people who are fighting for, you know, the justice of tenants and tenants protections and doing tenant advocacy. And I think that if, and I don't know if this will ever happen, but if the tenants union could could grow enough to get enough members, enough active members who pay dues and, and work as a union does in the way like maybe a labor union does, I think that in time, if they do enough outreach and enough organizing and enough good work, because there are, again, 62% of residents in Los Angeles are renters. We have enough money for votes because I think the way we get changes through the electoral process, we have, you know, if, if the LA Tenants Union can grow large enough, you know, and, and get some political clout and, you know, maybe, you know, have, have a real stake and, you know, a real influence on elections, I think that we could start seeing some change. I think that the, you know, tenants organizations right now are, are maybe the most active and, and organized as they've ever been. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but... I think what's happening is, is pretty great, and I think if, if it continues to grow, that'll be the way to do it. But I do know that the Tenants Union will be organizing um, door-to-door canvassing, I believe, probably to you know encourage people to call their representatives. Their state assembly members uh, would be called first 
kind of to encourage them and let them know how they feel about the Costa Hawkins review. I love it. Well, um, I, I definitely agree. People seem really energized right now. And it feels like uh, maybe it's a generational thing, but we are approaching uh, a, a real tipping point, maybe a paradigm shift. So consider this a call to action. Check out the LA Tenants Union. Uh, well, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on and congrats on finishing up school. Do you have any final thoughts or recommendations for our listeners? Absolutely. Um, I do have a recommended reading for people interested in housing in Los Angeles and just kind of the history of, you know, where we are right now as far as our housing crisis. And it's The City of Courts by Mike Davis. Um, ah, it's kind of a yes. I've read it. Yeah, it's great. So... That's all. Um, thank you for having me on. It was great speaking with you. And uh, City of Quartz, not Quartz with a C, but Q-U-A-R-T-Z for those that didn't catch that. Um, yeah, that is great. <laughs> um, yeah, I made that mistake myself. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Chelsea. It was great having you. And um, thank you so much for all the wonderful work that you're doing for L.A. Of course. All right. Thank you. You're Have welcome. a good one. You too. Talk to you later. Bye.
My next guest is the co-organizer of Divest LA, as well as Revolution LA. He hosts a series called Age of Reason, uh, which I highly recommend, and it can be found on YouTube. Phoenix Goodman, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be on. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and some of the work that Revolution LA has been doing. Sure. Well, I am working with Revolution LA, which I'm a co-organizer of. Uh, We've been a grassroots organization for uh, a little over two years under uh, great leadership of uh, Trinity, who's my colleague, uh, co-organizer and founder. And Throughout the years, we mainly focus mainly focused on, you know, getting the community uh, educated, doing community projects. We did some, we uh, we uh, improved the basement of a of a church, and uh, it was a place where they where they taught kids and and uh, did after school programs, and uh, it was a, a mess. So we we organized a bunch of people to improve that. Uh, we've done uh, documentary screenings, things like that. So it was more just like a community thing. But we started to develop a grand agenda of how we wanted, what things we wanted to happen in the world. But it's been exponential, uh, really, since uh, the beginning of this year. Uh, exponential, not only because of a boost of enthusiasm from Trump's inauguration, mm-hmm. uh, but the stars really aligned. Uh, what basically happened is, is a divest LA was formed. That's been where all the action has been at. What the best LA is, is uh, a move to have $8 billion of Los Angeles' public deposits, its funds that it banks with, uh, are currently in Wells Fargo. We're looking to get that out of Wells Fargo and into a bank that does not invest in DAPL in solidarity with the Standing Rock movement um, as momentum nationwide that started with Seattle, uh, the divestment movement. Um, well, but what we're going from here is very exciting because while we're in the process of getting that divestment uh, happening and, uh, you know, taking on Wells Fargo with very real results, I think, within the year, uh, there's a lot more evolution that uh, we're excited to, to see going forward. Right. People really seem to be waking up. Uh, and Santa Monica is already a step ahead. They, they voted unanimously to uh, uh, yep. divest, right? Absolutely. It really goes to show that uh, on a city level, having the right politicians in, in power can really do wonders. You know, a single city council person in Seattle, Kishama Sawat, uh, who is open-minded uh, to a degree much greater than, you know, the status quo politicians that usually, uh, you know, have the seat. Uh, that one, that the whole divestment movement started because all it takes is one person to be bold to push the agenda and, and create a new narrative. Uh, so, you know, and, and what we've been dealing with here is we're dealing with a very, very large city, a very large portfolio, and uh, conservative-minded people who are all about the money, who really don't see the moral need to do this per se, but they'll react to political pressure, and that's, you know, the game that we've had to play. Sure. Um, people really take for granted, at least it seems to me, how much of an impact they can have. Uh, at the local level and what's great about it I mean you're right they do respond to pressure it's a lot harder to hide from your constituents when you know you can run into us at the grocery store 
And, um, you know, it tends to be less partisan. So people uh, tend to get things done a little bit more quickly on the local level. But, I mean, what do you say to people that are just like, oh, you know, it's all corrupt. It's all rigged. And they just they don't vote. They don't even participate at a local level. How can we kind of build even more momentum? Yeah, that's a real, I think that's a very on point question because when you say, when you point to the merits of, of uh, local civics, I would go so far as to say that I do believe that this is like the paradigm shift because I think over the last 10, 20 years with the internet, little by little people are waking up to enormous degrees compared to what before. Now, you know, there's some collateral damage. Now, there's a lot of conspiracies that people believe that are true, but there's a lot of real conspiracies that people are rising up to, um, mostly uh, in financial in nature. And the swearing in of Trump, I think, is really solidifying an era right now, or ending an old era. I think really from 1989 uh, to 2016 will be an era, the post-Cold War era uh and we are now in a new era uh post trump hmm. and it's only the early ages of that and i think we're facing a major breakdown of the world order that that we're used to which is parkour in history right that's how history unfolds nothing's ever stable for forever as every empire that's ever existed will attest to and the the reason why i bring that up though about the city is because now we're losing so much faith in washington so gridlocked so corrupt that a city council member is accessible. Getting them in requires a, a much smaller vote count, a much easier campaign to win if you can mobilize correctly, because it's a lot smaller people and it's all it's all right there. Mm-hmm. And a single law, a, a stroke of a pen, can have massive implications at the local level, and it's extremely accessible. That's the revolution. It's not like Occupy getting in the streets. It's getting. Uh, uh, progressives in the city council and pushing bold agendas at city council. That's going to be the next wave. Yeah, actually learning how to get things done. Um, it's, you know, the system may be broken. I, I see it more like, hey, it just has bugs in it. It's still a very usable system. We just need to become more part of the process. Big time. Um, I mean, I think the system fundamentally could use a reboot in many ways, but it's not like we're starting from square zero. A lot of freedom fighters of the past, uh, we can thank for uh, some good things we have today, and we should leverage that. <laughs> we have the ability to, to you know, vote uh, leaders in and, and, and be visionary, but the problem has been, I think, a culture of apathy and a culture of just live and let live on on a very, very deep level to the point where we're not even worrying about how bold we can be with with legislation. But the future of what we're doing is going to be a public bank, and that's going to be phase two of divest movement. And we believe that that has the power to transform the entire system as a whole. I mean, paradigm-shifting levels. Sure, economics. Well, and that's why the theme of this episode is... is newfangled economics because that's such a a core issue that seems to you know transcend the left-right paradigm that could bring about um and there's so many different aspects to it uh like you said there's this unrealized potential out there but how do we get the message across and it's going to be really interesting uh with people power now and everything going viral so quickly how can um you know, how can we tap into that maybe with like an activist app 
or some kind of sharing platform because I, I can't tell you how nauseated it makes me every time I hear somebody talking about like, you know, the liberal national media. It's like, I'm sorry, I've never heard a single person in the national media say anything about the advantages of worker owned co-ops or how the <laughs> citizens of the state actually own. I mean, that's why we're called commonwealths. We own the resources. The oil shouldn't be, you know, being given over to private companies. We should be using that. I mean, we could we could affect right. a, a negative income tax. So it's going to be really interesting uh, where we go from here. But but first, uh, I want to hear a little bit more of your story. I mean, what brought you to this point? Was there a particular aha moment where you knew like, hey, this is it. Activism is going to be a big part of my life from now on. Or was there, did you have like a mentor that kind of inspired you? Um, it started with my very inquisitive mind and just starting off going into the rabbit hole uh, online, right? You ever have those nights where you just have 10 tabs of Wikipedia and YouTube open? Oh, at least. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in, in a period of my life where I was going through that, um, I came, I, I went through the, the rabbit hole conspiracies, but, you know, did not, not to a crazy degree, but to a degree where I was really learning at an exponential pace what was going on in the world. And that was the beginning of wanting to, but feeling like, you know, the world is so big around my, you know, young self. Um, Occupy was kind of picking up at that time. I didn't get, this was, I, I was not involved in Occupy. This was before I actually had developed that level of consciousness. But it was in the zeitgeist, right? It was kind of like this is happening around me and this is becoming interesting. Yeah. You could feel uh, it. I could feel it. And, you know, the more literature that I consumed online that was about that, the more, you know, radicalized in the sense I could become. But I use that word in a, in a positive way. Um, and... You know, really what ended up happening, I think I think synergy is just insanely important. Right? If anybody's like listening and wondering how can I become effective, I can't explain I can't I can't, you know, tell uh, explain enough how amazing the idea of one person that's really good at one thing and then another person that's another good at another thing and then they support each other and their synergy and then four or five people come together as a group and they all bring in something different. And then, but at the same time, are, are focused in vision and mission. By doing that and having bold vision and willpower, amazing things can happen. And I say that because we started off in a coffee shop. I was at Revolution LA's second meeting. And all we did was just talk, kind of like a conversation we're having now, just talking about stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is the beginning of Revolution LA. Fast forward with an incredible amount of willpower. Um, and uh, and leadership Trinity, who's been running it, is is uh, really uh, ambitious with uh, her work ethic and uh, vision, and uh, that synergized with the incredible team that's built up all together. The alliances with all the incredible people, it becomes uh, it becomes exponential. And next thing you know, when there's the right place, the right time, and the right energy things can really become meaningful uh, within a short period of time. And that's what's happened with us. 
Oh, definitely. I mean, I feel it every time I show up to one of the strategy meetings or the other events, it's uh, when I can make it, you know, I have such a hectic schedule, but it's like food for me when I'm there. You know, I leave just so rejuvenated. I'm just talking to people nonstop. It's like, get on the phone. You're not still with Wells Fargo. Are you? Come on, mom, like pull your money out of there. Those bastards are laundering drug money for fucking terrorists and uh, invading native sovereign territory. You know, it's like the 60s never ended. It's us that changed. It's time to bring that back. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, it is amazing what a difference we can make. So so back to that. Yeah. Um, talking about uh, credit unions and divestment and, mm. and, and the effort, you know, to kind of break up the big banks, basically. I mean, there's so many good reasons for it. And I've brought it up on this show before, but for some reason still, I've, I'm being met with this resistance. You know, it's the same old excuses like um, there's confusion about the FDIC issues. They say they like their bank or it's more accessible. So I mean, can you just break it down? Yeah, just to ask you, when you're talking about that, you're talking about like individuals getting out of their bank account into like a credit union. Sure, on an individual level. On the individual level, right. Um I believe very much on the individual divestment. I think that that is a narrative that we should keep on pushing and keep on uh, uh, getting people to, to do personally and, and encouraging their family and friends. I moved uh, from Wells Fargo to a credit union, and it felt really good. It took me a, a while because the convenience factor mm. really bogged me down. But doing what I was doing, I had to you know be in line with my values. So I did it, and you know, with not too much effort, it's not that big of a deal and it feels a lot better and it's a great, great institution. So I definitely think we should do that. I will say this. I am wary when for people to focus too much on uh, the individual consumption uh, narrative side of things. Hmm. And because I do feel that that's in a sense of deflection from the power of synergy and collective, uh, you know, legislation. I'll give you an example. Uh, so there was a legislation passed in the city recently about uh, plastic bags in supermarkets, right? Right. Now, you could, you could create a whole campaign, and the amount of resources you would put in to get X amount of people to actually choose one or the other, and there's not that high barrier to entry, right? You can just choose one, so it's not that big of a deal. But a lot of people would still use plastic. But with a single stroke of a pen through a single legislation, all plastic is banned from the entire city, right? So legislation is powerful because laws are like the premises and then the conclusions are what flows from that. And that applies to the legal system as well. And so it, so the key is, is I think that there's a libertarian fallacy that you see so many bad laws. And so you say, that's bad. Look how evil the power of government is, so we need to decrease it. The question is not a matter of size necessarily. There are questions of size, but not in this case. I think it's about quality. And if we and if we have enlightened laws that can actually leverage the banking system, not only divest individuals, but get the entire city to get out of the bank, the banks. Yeah, we might invest a, a few million dollars or hundreds of millions even on an individual divestment, but with a single stroke of a pen, we can move eight billion dollars. So it's important to look at things from that macro level too. It's more important in my opinion, in tandem with the individual. That's really incredible. I mean, 8 billion, uh, imagine what we could do. And, um, just with a modest interest rate that could really 
put so much into our schools and into our roads and whatnot. And there's no reason why we should be letting these transnational, you know, blood banksters be taking that, that these exorbitant interest rates. I mean, and I'm so glad I use a credit union because they're much more reasonable, you know, when you do fuck up and there's some kind of fee or something. And, um, you know, they'll even give you like free check or free money orders if you run out of checks and banks just nickel and dime you on every little thing. And it's like, what for? And the fact that they are transnational, um, it seems like this is kind of a conservative issue because to have a state chartered bank, it's less of a conflict of interest with sovereignty issues. Yeah, I think that the, the public bank solution is going to be one of those aha moments in the movement. The, and when I say the movement, I mean the general, like the popular uprising in its general sense, right? Mm-hmm. It's happening. I think that the public bank solution is going to be one of the most clutch, key things that can that will make the biggest difference. Because name something screwed up in the world, okay? Like war, uh, fossil fuels, all, all the structural stuff. Mm-hmm. All roads lead to the banks because everything requires funding, okay? So all roads lead to the banks. And so... When you think about that, and you think about the amount of power the circulatory system of the economy has, by putting private bankers in charge of the power to create and lend money, you're putting the vampires in charge of the blood bank. It's literally, it's not even, the reason why I don't even like to think of it as right or left is because to me it's like, no, no, this is just rational. This is, it's literally irrational to have private bankers. It just doesn't make sense on a logical level. Because because the banks that are public can have a charter that can invest all that money, the infrastructure that we loan, uh, the infrastructure loans that the city gets. If they want to build a school, if they want to build a bridge or a road, and they have to buy bonds to do that, they have to get a loan. The fact is, is a bank, the bank will give that loan, and people don't know this. Here's a good fact: you're going to have to give back, or the city has to give it back, almost the amount that they originally. Uh, uh, borrowed back in interest and fees, doubled, in other words. That is extractive, and that comes from tax dollars. That is literally Wall Street with a big uh, leech or pipe, you know, it's plugged into your city and then sucking out the tax dollars that you work for. It's theft. It's structural bank robbery, reverse. So the $100 million that Los Angeles paid in fees last year, $100 million in uh, fees to, well, to, to the banks, their services. If that went to the city, as you mentioned, what could that invest in? If that was reinvested in schools and uh, in and other social programs, it's literally a no-brainer. And this is what we're going to fight for: is the public bank solution on a state and a municipal level, nationwide. Wow. So it seems like on your point about this being central to so many other issues, um, it's kind of like they say, follow the money. But it's not just the money itself you know it's not like money is evil money's neutral it's it's this love of money and it, it seems like what you're getting at is more of a a greater paradigm shift that maybe what we're looking at perhaps even in our lifetimes is kind of a post-scarcity mentality i mean do you think it's possible to be in kind of a post-scarcity world in our lifetime I definitely believe that in order to get to post-scarcity, 
we need to have the prerequisite, you know, government and economic system that can lead to that, and that's what this revolution that's coming now will, will lead into is that prerequisite system. Um, now, do I think we'll reach post-scarcity in our lifetime? I would say if we are probably elders, we might. I see it happening in decades, like a handful of decades, right? But within within one to two hundred years, I would say is when the post-scarcity world can realistically come to be. Um, and I do believe that the banking system, the public banking system, is a prerequisite to that, to what you say. It's not about money per se, because money is just like a neutral, amoral energy at the end of the day. But the system that uses that energy can harness that energy for plunder and greed and factional interests at the expense of the common good, or it can be funneled towards enlightened investment towards, you know, positive pro-social and pro-environmental things. And so all you have to do is rethink the economic structure, infrastructure of the economy itself, the fundamentals, and the rest will flow. You have a public bank that, that is the source of all the funds, and then they have a charter or a mandate that they have to invest in pro-social things and in pro-environmental things. Overnight, the financial industry is, is revolutionized. That can be applied across the board. Complete overhaul. Would it be a start if we would at least do what Iceland did? Would it be too late to throw all of the banksters in jail and take the bailout money and give it to the people to help pay off their mortgages and things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I believe that that is technically possible and and preferable. But the difference with Iceland is Iceland is a small island nation, uh, kind of like this homogenous, low population, you know, very tight kind of country. So they have, they have, to them, national is local <laughs> simultaneously. Right, right. Whereas America, in its like fundamental makeup, are different states, different cultures, vast like empire territorially, right? Different races. It's just a very, very, very different kind of animal. And so I think that our revolution isn't necessarily going to come from and like by attacking the mortar or the central station or you know the Death Star, however you want to look at it. <laughs> it's not going to be that type of victory. I think it's going to be more of, in a in an ironic way, this is something that a lot of conservatives like is like the whole localism thing. But I do believe it's going to come from cities and states standing up against uh, the conservative backlash and then creating their own like you know. Um, uh, self uh, destiny and, and kicking the banks out by creating public banking systems that make them irrelevant, sweep the power out from under them. Right, and that would be a lot more stable anyway, because we don't have that big, uh, too big to fail mentality when we centralize <laughs> and consolidate everything in one place. Right, exactly. Interesting. And, and the thing, and here's the other thing: is that's also a part of these are they're also casinos, right? That's, I mean, that's what it actually is. Yeah, they have banking services, but these Wall Street firms are simply casinos where they are the house and they're the players. And so, and then we're the dupes, basically, that get raped and pillaged. So, yeah. that's I thought stable. We need to manifest a new economy that stabilizes boom and bust, for sure. Right. And, and 
kind of puts up protections so we don't have these bubble markets anymore. I've got an interesting point of view because, believe it or not, my very first job when I was 15 years old was at a commodity brokerage firm. And this dude, uh, I usually introduced him as my cousin. Really, it was just a guy that rented a room in my mom's house. But like he wound up staying for years and he liked her more than his real parents. So we kind of introduced him as like, oh, yeah, that's my cousin. He stays here. But uh, <laughs> I worked for him for a little while. And he was like a top. Well, it was weird. First, he was a broker. Then it's like he's a trader. Then I remember by the end of his career, he was like, oh, no, I, I, I don't do any of that stuff. I'm just a speculator. And it's just like, just from those three name changes alone, you see this like lack of accountability happening. Yeah. And and those guys knew that it was all a scam. And there was even a documentary floating around. It was a double VHS set called, maybe you've seen it, The Money Masters. No, I haven't seen that one, but I've seen quite a few other ones. Yeah. yeah. And they get into the whole history with the Rothschilds. And um, how, you know, it really was a great thing at first, issuing banknotes in exchange for coins, because people, it, we were still somewhat nomadic back then. And you're, if you're traveling around Europe, you don't want to haul around every single, you know, precious metal that you own. You want a few notes, you know, and then yeah. exchange it as you go. So it was just this this great thing. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was interesting because that was right around the time they were getting ready to repeal Glass-Steagall. And there's a whole nother, you know, can of worms right there with the Clintons and Hillary getting ready to run for New York, uh, her, her senatorial race because of the Wall Street guys definitely wanted them to break it up. But we've seen this movie before, you know, these bubble markets, yeah. the boom and bust, as you mentioned, it happened in the 20s. And that's why we put Glass-Steagall into effect so that banks could be right. just these stable kind of boring entities where we could deposit our money. They weren't supposed to be casinos. And when we said like, hey, who cares? Just do whatever you want with this money. You guys know best. It, so, uh, on the one hand, the, the, the liberal part of me wants to say, yes, those protections, we need those, those you know, regulations, right? Mm -hmm. But on a deeper level, I think that at the end of the day, it all represents a, a system that is not ideal and that those regulations are part of kind of the elite light. Like the Democratic Party is like the center-right, still elitist party. And within, within the oligarchies, you have kind of, I think, this faction that is just more brash, straight to the point, rape the people of everything they have, child labor if you have to, I don't give a fuck. And I think that there's the left wing of the elite that say, no, we like our system, but let's just kind of like give enough bones to keep it placated to stave off the revolution. They're a little smarter about keeping the revolution staved off. Hmm. Whereas the way I look at it is like, I don't think the the answer is just regulation regulating Wall Street, right? That 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 misses the point. And to me, I see, I see that as a steam valve to guide left, you know, left wing mentalities into being complacent for the system as a whole, which is still about massive private bankers that that you know that do what they do nonetheless, albeit maybe a little bit more controlled, but still the fundamentals are the same. And then and then a, a government and cultural system that really doesn't manifest the best in humanity it's still kind of you know materialistic and you know not ideal whereas a public banking system that doesn't even have bank, private bankers at all because it's not a thing or if it is it's about credit unions and 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 very ethical ones by law very withheld 
and then reinvesting very proactively in making the world a better place and solving the world's problems, like reversing all the ecosystem problems. I mean, we need, think about what the Manhattan Project was. Okay, let me give you an example. What did we do in the Manhattan Project? We had to gather a shitload of scientists and engineers, et cetera, Mm -hmm. with an extremely big focused effort that we put money and, 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 and vision into big time. Oh yeah. Right. It was like life or death, guide the resources of humanity together. Well, the Apollo mission was the same type of thing. What is that? Okay. That's what makes a nation great. And that's what makes nations memorable. We're, we're not going to remember anything about any nation that didn't do, that didn't do stuff like that in the big scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's how we need to think again is like Apollo mission, uh, 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 Manhattan project, except for creating post-scarcity, uh, environmental, uh, saving the environment and all the other big problems that we should overcome to create like a Star Trek type of society. We need to proactively create it. And so the public, the banking system being regulated is not the system to create that Star Trek world. No, but um, going back to your earlier point about the power of the pen, and if we did do things where, hey, you know what, what if we just made for-profit banking entities illegal, don't need them? I mean, kind of like Teddy Roosevelt, good old days, you know, if you are not working in the interests of the American commons, you're basically getting the death penalty. Uh, you, you got no business here. He did. He did dissolve corporations that that were proved to be working against us. Um, you know, we were hardcore back then. He didn't take any shit. Um, he's kind of the exact opposite of Trump, by the way. You know, speak softly and carry a big stick. This is like, wow, exact opposite. Um, so, uh, or force them to be public. The way they're beholden not to just the bottom line. Um, And they aren't required by law because a lot of people forget that a corporate entity is required by law just to make money. So even if that means like, oh, we're going to have to like poison the food because somehow this poison happens to be legal, um, that's going to make us more money. We have to do it. It's bizarre. So working through that, but we can take those little steps. And I think going local is a, a really empowering one. Well, it's empowering because it's a fundamental unit. As you, you, you mentioned, like running into your city council member at the grocery store, the civic unit of the city is actually the most fundamental unit there is. Anything beyond the city is just networks of cities, right, or countryside. But, everybody, but, but the city is the civic unit. I mean, think about the origin of humanity was at Sumer, the first city-state. It's the fundamental, like the first of any type of civilization usually begins with a city state by definition and then they consolidate. So the city is the basic unit. If we, and, I, and I think if, if we start to think like that again, and then people are very, very engaged with their city halls in the future with municipal public banks, imagine, like, I think it would have like this, like Renaissance type cultural uh, explosion. Like, you know, like, like what happened in Italy, that was city states. That was the Renaissance. Oh. What happened in, the Greek Golden Age, that was city-states. I think there's something to, you know, a city identity that creates kind of a lot of a buzz of, of intellectual energy. Oh, definitely. Well, and in France, during the Catholic versus Protestant era, that's that was part of that co- uh, consolidation of power, was uh, the Pope and the King coming together against those city-states that were kind of doing their own thing. 
um, really right. fascinating. So I, I can't help it though, but it's like my Jewish paranoia gets the best of me. And I actually lived in Missouri for a couple of years when I was going to college out there. And, and, and there's definitely that vibe. And with the Bundy rebellion, isn't there some part of you that's like, whoa, this maybe we shouldn't encourage these local movements too much because it's going to turn into this like anti-federalist just wave of secessionist movements or or something really dangerous like a, a return to the Confederacy? I think that's a, that's a really good point because, as you can tell, I'm arguing the local thing from a left-wing perspective. Right, right. right. Because it's a fascinating thing because, on, you know, on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, think about this. What if a state or, you know, a city has a legislation that's uh, against the, the against certain human rights, like, you know, reversing, you know, uh, civil rights or whatever, right? Or even even the Supreme Court's ability to uh, overturn or, or, or to overturn you know the gay marriage thing. Like, what if the what if the central large authority is more enlightened than the smaller authorities? Right. Isn't that better as a whole? Right. But then the question is: is what if the central authority sucks, and then all the uh, and then there's other enlightened smaller authorities that are that are being held back? For example, you know if. I think that if California and uh, Los Angeles, I'm not saying like secession necessarily. I mean, who knows what the future might hold, but I'm not even a proponent of that per se. But just if if hypothetically the federal government would just kind of dissolve a little bit of power and then the power of the states increased a little bit more, right? Mm -hmm. In a way, California probably could blast past everybody in a lot of ways, and so could be the progressive ones. And so how do you decide which one is, is best? But I th- one thing that makes me a little bit more prone to the localism, I guess, is because I realize this. The buddies of the world, the tr- um, a lot of Trump supporter types, <laughs> not to be, you know, to, to stereotype, yeah. but, you know, to think of the stereotypes. A lot of the, the, the hardcore right-wing libertarian type people, they will never change their mind, and they are as passionate, if not more passionate, if possible, than we are about the way we feel. And they will fight to the death to have their system at the end of the day as a whole in the, in the scheme of things unfolding history. So in a way, having having a, a, a whole that's connected but squabbling incessantly and completely a house divided versus people having self-determination and doing the thing they want to do and yet leaving open uh, migration ability. So if somebody says, you know what, I don't like the rules in this town or city or state. Let me move to that state because that fits my style more. And then having that open, maybe people can actually be happier because they can have what they want. Hmm. Isn't that freedom more of freedom? People just having what they want instead of half the people being pissed all the time. That's just another perspective to consider. Right. Imagine that. Well, it's kind of like, um, I mean, it is a paradox, for example, how I feel about the UN, um, it's really important that it exists. Are there some problems with it or there's some troublemakers? Sure. But, you know, I'm definitely glad it's there. Um, however, I'm really glad that nations have their sovereignty. Otherwise, what would be the point of the United Nations? You know, yeah, we, we need to represent, yeah, our, our specific cultures. And it's beautiful that we're so diverse. But, um, yeah, you need to kind of, you, you need to draw the line somewhere. And it's interesting, you talk about um, kind of coming at it 
the the local issue from a, a left wing point of view. I've always kind of felt that way about the immigration issue. Um, I'm all for being strict about who we let in and who we let leave. For Christ's sake, if you owe fifty thousand dollars, maybe we shouldn't just have a, a libertarian paradise where we just let people come and go wherever they want. Maybe um, yeah. I look at it more: how can we protect unions? You know, how can we have a really stable economy? And it's not going to be just combining our nation's economy um, with other countries and whatnot. But it really is a fascinating uh, paradox. Well, you know, people don't realize that the origin of nationalism uh, was actually started as a left-wing concept hmm. in the French Revolution. It was the left-wingers that were the nationalists. That's fascinating, right? Because to them, because because the, the nation represented the whole, it represented the communal, right? Oh. As, as opposed to like principalities being ruled by the monarch or whatever, you know, it was like a different mentality. And so, you know, it's just, it's just fascinating the way things change, just like the way Democrats and Republicans switched historically because of its idiosyncratic reasons. Um, so I think that there might, you know, there's a Wikipedia article on left-wing nationalism, and that's the idea of, like, a nation that acts in the common well-being of its own people and then has moral standards of equal rights and, you know, pro-women's health and all that, all the other positive left-wing things, but in a nationalist kind of a thing. Um, so that's just something to consider uh, if... You know, and, and considering all the different ways we can do things, and there's paradoxes with all of it. You know, how do we tease through it? We just have to use, we have to really think. I guess use our brains. <laughs> that is interesting how nationalism can kind of represent collectivism, whereas the monarchy just represents the the elite. Um, and H.G. Wells, I remember hearing a term attributed to him. Apparently, he believed because you know he did coin that term when he wrote the book New World Order. Um, which was one of your Age of Reason episodes that I really liked. And he, uh, that term, it's, it's just so enduring. But apparently he was all for it, if you actually read the whole thing. And, and that's maybe why uh, this, this seemingly contradictory term can make sense, because liberal fascism, it's like we do need like sort of that iron fist to rule. But as long as they're enlightened... As long as they're reasonable. I mean, and that's very British. I mean, of course, he was British. They're kind of like, hey, somebody's got to rule the world. It might as well be the polite fellows. <laughs> well put, yeah. So uh, interesting. And it also sort of, I, I just had to throw this out there, but the the way you were talking about the city-state sort of being this organic development, it's almost like the way, talk about as above, so below, right? And the meta of everything. It's very similar to how the human body operates. We got all these people traveling back and forth, sort of like, you know, the roads are like arteries and veins and you got these centralized locations downtown or Hollywood. It's like the heart and the brain. So, I mean, it really does trip me out. Bear with me here. The segue is it's, it's, there's something almost organic about politics and people treat it like it's this cold, distant, kind of mechanism but more and more they're finding democracy is natural schools of fish and birds they actually vote like telepathically that's why they all know to change at the same time and um even a lot of more tribal species like wolves and stuff there might be like an alpha male alpha female but that is usually just a sexual thing so just to counter that i will say that in an animal society sex 
and or who owns the females is very much a sign of power to the degree that money would be a sign of power in our society. Oh, because it's still property. Right. In, in, in its context, it's still like a power play. <laughs> Interesting. Right. Okay, so so to a degree, for sure. Um, But still, as far as like predatory stuff, animals eat to survive. Maybe cats will kind of fuck around with the mouse or torture that yeah. lizard a little bit too much, you know, before it eats it or it won't even eat it. It'll just like leave it as a present. But um, there's something really unnatural about the way we do things. People can feel it. People feel like their vote doesn't count. That's why they seem like they're disgusted with the whole system. Yet, well, keep in mind when 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 democracy was invented, it was invented in a city state, right? And so, what would happen? The way that they did it actually is now. Granted, the majority of people in Athens were not citizens, and many of them were slaves, and then women couldn't vote, and then a lot of men couldn't vote either, unless they were born in Athens. So it was kind of like an elite, but it was like a wide elite, right? Mm. It was like a wide elite is the way to look at it. But they were, it was, you know, they were voted upon nonetheless. And they would meet in, like, the city hall, and then they would have these, you know, oratory, you know, uh, uh, periods where they would discuss everything, and then they'd all have put in their vote, and it was like this big civic engagement that all the citizens came together, right? So democracy on a city level is just way more tenable than this. Than this. And what we have is not, I mean... Whatever this is, it, it, what it is is it's a, it's, a, it's an oligarchy that kind of like plays democracy to make us feel good, <laughs> but but it's not it's not. I mean, I think there's going to be a radical shift system overhaul uh, at some point, and people are losing faith in this fraud of the system in which corporatists are the only guarantee. That's not democracy, right? Okay, so then maybe we can find a middle ground. Um, it's definitely not working the way things are. And yeah, for my money, the United States was never supposed to be this big. Even the British warned us about fucking around with the Native Americans because they had a lot of experience that themselves. They didn't want to lose control of the colonies. They wanted a really tight, you know, highly controlled area. And of course, it's our founding fathers who are like, uh, uh, boo, boo, we're going to expand our property. We're going to do whatever the hell we want. So that's a, uh, interesting thing. You know, we act like it's just like, ooh, white people versus the natives or whatever. But Britain definitely knew not to expand. So, um, sorry, where was I going with that? Yeah. And so we're just so expansive now. Puerto Rico and all this stuff. Like, is that there's a lot of confusion and it seems like we're never going to stop expanding. So if you're not for straight up secession, um, what about something like the nine nations of the United States? People have drawn up. You can see maps online. Uh, yeah. Like break it up into like nine big municipalities. I don't think that that needs to happen by fiat. I don't think that some like big government advisory council needs to come together and say, I shall declare. I think what's going to happen is like just as a par course of history, it's just going to unfold this way where you're going to have, uh, you know, people kind of opting for, for their sovereignty, sovereignty in whatever ways that they kind of create organically. And it's really hard to predict that, but it probably will fall roughly along those lines naturally, more or less. If I had to predict, like, the way America will unfold in the, history, in the scheme of history, like, it might go like the Roman Empire, where it kind of, like, balkanizes and, and you know, loses... Uh, control of certain regions that might happen because there's such a big anti-government like right-wing kind of militia mindset in this country unlike any other country in the world so it's like ungovernable in this 
scheme of things. So I think it's just going to be kind of a natural thing. I can't predict. It's fun to play futurism. Oh, yeah, for sure. Anything could happen, and I'm certainly grateful to be living in such interesting times. So what what do you think? Um, I mean, obviously, we are at this tipping point. What do you think the new economy is going to look like? Um, Are there some things... I mean, we talked about banking and whatnot, but anything else like worker-owned co-ops or... So I think that the nature of capitalism needs to fundamentally shift, right? I don't think that the answer is kind of like old Cold War-style Soviet nationalization of everything. It's not that type of thing. But I think that the way markets are conducted should all be done for the common good. So definitely more co-ops. Those types of uh, business organizations need to be uh, stimulated and incentivized. Um, I think that one thing is moral hazard of corporations acting as people, which by definition kind of turns people into psychopaths because like you have, you're, you're running a corporation, but it's a separate entity. So you have this moral hazard and then you're able to take big risks that you wouldn't take if it was your own, uh, liability. So I think that, I think ending corporate personhood and just making businesses should basically, I sole proprietorships or partnerships, basically. Sure. I mean, they can't be treated like people because corporations never die. People die. And, and they don't have consciences. And, everybody, and, they're, and they're acting they're, they're acting upon on behalf of other people who, who are one step removed from the decision. So they're going to, A, act reckless, B, act immorally. It's crazy talk. Mm-hmm. So that's good. that right there will scale back boom-bust cycles because people are going to take much less risky uh, investments. Then outlawing speculation, derivative trading, shorting, all the uh, credit default swaps, all these types of things, done, outlawed, right? And that's not infringing on freedom like you know some people might think when they say hear the word outlawed. It's not infringing on freedom. It's doing the exact opposite. It's creating the freedom to have a more enlightened economy, which makes the living conditions of the average person much better, and that is true freedom. Sure in a better society so you know the ending short ending speculation and in corporate corporate personhood um uh you know a new deal pipe implementation of uh of uh or the new deal policies so uh, building 100 percent green energy grids possibly desalination plants you know whatever you can think of that can solve the big problems and put a lot of people to work um, these are the, this is the type of way that I think we need to be thinking about about the future is this proactive uh, making imminent of the post-scarcity Star Trek world. Right. Not just what happened organically, but consciously manifesting it. I love it. You know, I was talking about the New Deal with someone and uh, brought up the 91% tax rate. And, you know, people... They're just so ADD, and you kind of do have to just boil things down to a sound clip type essence. But it just sounds so insane to them. And, you know, by the time you're done explaining some other story about Alex Jones, how FDR sold us to the Chinese, that's already made its way around the world. What did Mark Twain say? Like, the falsehood is going to make its way around the world twice by the time the truth is just tying its shoes. It's really bizarre. But, yeah, basically I was going to say tax reforms... um, Because what people don't understand is that 91% tax rate, it wasn't just like straight up, like everybody who makes money 
you know, for every dollar you make. No, it was like only after you already made a million dollars. So, I mean, right. I, don't know, I don't know how much of that million dollars you get to keep. But in fact, uh, Jello Biafra, he was, on, you know, of the Dead Kennedys. He was on the uh, Bill Maher show back in the 90s. And I remember being this teenage punk rocker, so excited, you know, Jello Biafra is going to be on. And he brought up something I'd never, ever heard of, a maximum wage. Right. And how nobody needs a billion dollars. And I know it sounds like socialism to a lot of people, but this is what the founders wanted because the original wage laws in this country were not minimum wage laws. They were maximum wage laws because that's how we paid since there was no income tax at the time. That's how we paid for the White House. That's how we paid for this country was through those kinds of taxes and barriers and tariffs. And um, I mean, another way I'll put it is is that if you have a company, let's say, I mean, of course, living the way things are, the predatory way, you're just going to stash as much money as you can in your offshore Cayman Island tax haven or your Swiss bank account, whereas the New Deal way would be, hey, you have to reinvest it into the company because you're incentivized through these tax things to keep the money. You know, you don't want to make more than a million dollars profit, perhaps. So you give people bonuses and stuff, and then they generate, it's like a direct injection into the economy. And again, I mean, we just need to work on getting the message out that these are, are not like socialist plots. You know, these are ways to, to keep the system healthy. It's like a tree. It's enlightened capitalism. It's social capitalism. Right. right. Social capitalism. I like it. Right. That's what it is. And, and here's another thing. Um, here's the one tax that can change the world in, in an extremely, extremely significant way is the inheritance tax. Okay, that's big because that actually that transfers uh, massive wealth from one generation to the other, right? right? So imagine somebody's worth like sixty-five billion dollars, right? And then the, and then uh, an heir to that fortune. Literally, you will have a dynasty of people who who can then influence policy, and because money can grow at that level, they can only grow; it'll grow over time. What we're witnessing without this inheritance tax law is the manifestation of a, of a neo-aristocracy, right? And if we think about the Rothschilds, anybody that's like, quote-unquote, woken up on the Internet knows about, you know, the Rothschild conspiracy or, like, all these, you know, bankers out there. We're on to you, Red Shield! Here's the fact. Well, uh, if you let's just give an example. If you had an inheritance tax where you could not inherit more than $10 million, all right? Let's just say that. Okay? Think about this. The only the people that inherit ten million dollars is already less than one percent of people. So you're basically affecting effectively almost nobody except for a very small percentage of people. However, the thing is is wealth exponentially grows. It's not about one versus ninety nine. That's a convenient thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a problem with people in the one per se. It's the point zero one or point zero zero one that's really what we're talking, right? So if hypothetically somebody had $65 billion and then they died and then their son inherited $10 million, which was the maximum inheritance, that can go towards reinvesting in the common good for whatever way that, that you know, that, that it could go. There are a million ways. But instead of creating an oligarchy, this person would still be fairly well off, almost more than anybody, but then you prevent an oligarchy from existing. And imagine if you had 
100% inheritance tax over a certain point, then you literally in one generation almost click the reboot button on society and then everything gets reinvested fresh. And that in tandem with all the laws you talked about to keep the money in the, in the country and reinvest in bonuses, that, that is a very pro-social economy. I think that would be revolutionary. You'd never have an oligarchy again. Sure. And I remember, who was it? Bill Gates? Uh, they were like withholding money from their kids just because they wanted them to get some life experience. Necessity is the mother of invention and you're going to get a lot more creative and innovative if you if you get out there and you actually have to struggle have to figure things out like the rest of us right um and you're right i mean jimmy carter himself i believe it was on the tom hartman program a few years ago he declared this nation no longer a constitutional republic but a oligarchy and it's for those yeah. reasons exactly so yeah it's it's time to take the power back i mean because how much further do they need to take it uh, again, nobody needs over a billion dollars. And how is it going to feel to be a rich man in a poor country? I mean, you can hide in your gated community, but eventually, I mean, you're not going to be able to eat money. You know, if you, you know, treat people like shit and the environment like shit, you're going to have nothing to eat eventually. Keep this in mind, right? Think about the elite. I mean, imagine if you're in this a really old family that goes back many generations that's extremely well connected, right? And you you go to the, the top private schools. You're you you traveled around with your parents, maybe meeting presidents and the Pope and shit like that, right? Yeah. The Queen of England, like that's the life you. And you know, and you're worth billions of dollars and whatever, right? And everybody kisses your ass because of your name. The only working class people that person ever freaking grew up with are literally like the the, the help, okay? And that rest is like this this is is this bubble for the most part. So I think that psychologically, literally, creates like a, it's a mindset where I don't even think they could empathize if they wanted to, or at least. Not not all of them. Not the stereotype. Not a stereotyper. But I think as a general trend, that's the type of mentality that actually uh, manifests in this elite. And so when people are thinking about like creating revolutionary change, it's not going to be love and light because they don't like look at us as. I think they look at us as like ants, to be honest, like the masses, the fodder. And we have to realize like it's a it's a it's a it's a mind war and. And, and people have to wake up that we can't be handed the world we want by the status quo that has given us the world uh, that we have. We have to wrestle the levers of power. And this is why, you know, yelling like Occupy in the street can only go so far and is only effective if it is a strategy in tandem with affecting the levers of power through legislation. Sure. And I'm with you. I don't really like the term uh, 99% or 1% because we are part of the whole. It's 100% or nothing. And everybody's different. This is why, you know, when people are just like, definite Illuminati, it's like, have you ever met more than one family member? They never get along on everything. People disagree. People change their minds all the time. And even wealth, you're right. They're not all the same. Look at the Roosevelts. They were seen as traitors to uh, the aristocratic class because of all these things that they were doing for the commons and the Kennedys too, to a degree. Kennedy, I was say that, yeah. Right, whereas Ronald Reagan came from nothing and wound up just decimating the middle class. So you never know. Yeah. But a lot of people are, it's, it's not that it's a conscious predatory thing. They're just playing the hand that they were dealt. 
And remember that kid even got off of a murder case or manslaughter case because they decided he had affluenza. It's like he didn't even know any better. And I feel like it was that George Bush junior generation where their parents weren't even around. Just industriousness was such a big deal to that their parents generation that they kind of grew up, like you said, not only in that bubble, but with no one really there to instill a sense of right from wrong. So right. it is going to take a while, but... Um, you know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a quote that I liked. I forgot who said it, but it was like, if you're poor and you're a psychopath, you rob the bank, right? Or you'll, you'll, you'll murder or whatever. But if, if you're and you're a psychopath, then you can run the bank. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Or like a fool robs the bank but like a true criminal owns the bank. <laughs> right. All, all of humanity is the same. And, and so the, the, I think that at the end of the day, it comes down to this is like a, any society in which one class of people has a privileged dominant position over the rest. I think that's an inherent evil. And any society that sees everybody as equal uh, under the law with equal opportunity is, a, is, is, a, is the right type of society. Right. And, Yes, overthrowing monarchies and creating republics was a huge step forward for, for humanity, right? Like, I'm like, there's tragedies in history, like the Library of Alexandria and like other things. Where you're like, oh, that sucks that happened. But then there's other things. I'm like, oh, that's really awesome that happened. Like, you know, the 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 revolutions and the, and the enlightenment that led to these anti-monarchy movements, right? But what's happened is is the power that represents monarchy, the power that represents the very tiny elite living in a completely separate universe from the masses, that's happening now with, with 85 people owning half the wealth of the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. We're there. And it's only getting worse. So at a certain point, there's going to have to be a, a paradigm shift where the assets of these people are seized from overseas, uh, where there might be some massive level of debt forgiveness, where there might, where there's going to have to be, be, you know, new governments. I think that there's going to be a tumultuous breakdown of the, of the order in the next few years, within the next 10 at most, I think. And we're going to start to see these revolutionary type movements, I think far right and far left emerging. And it's going to be very interesting times ahead. Well, that's why I'm calling this the populist papers. I decided progressive is still a term that's really divisive. People have told me like, oh, you're progressive, so you must like being managed by others, like elites or something. It's just so weird. So I figure like, hey, looking at the rise of Bernie and even Trump, there is this just this wave of populism happening. People are finally thinking about like, oh, how does this affect more the great the majority of us? And, yeah. um, you know, I think people are, are starting to see more in that direction and it's happening, this paradigm shift. So, but absolutely, um, that kind of wealth, I mean, it only leads to more wealth addiction and more of that us versus them kind of separation. And it seems like it's, it's a form of psychosis. So do you think that when this shift finally takes hold, are we going to move into a new eon of like reasoned cooperation or... Are the fucking bastards, are, the, are they going to have their goons just unleash total chaos in one so, last death coup to, like, maintain? Here's what I think, to be quite honest, is that the, the, the future has not happened, history is yet to be written, and both are technically possibilities depending on what the hell people do, literally. 
I think that see the reason the reason okay the reason why I'm just trying to organize my thoughts here. There's so many things that go through my mind, but the reason why this question of like this dominating elite over the masses is is so pertinent is because. I'm going to give an example. Like I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of the singularity, transhumanism. You know yeah. the idea of genetic engineering. Well, I, I played Deus Ex. <laughs> uh, a... Oh, I I actually didn't. I have heard. I, I was just interested in it separately. But, but like I, hom- I, I Homo evolutus, all that stuff. Right, right. So, uh, but I will say this: that if we get to a point where these technologies become ubiquitous. And we are still in a paradigm of extreme haves and have-nots. But the extreme haves will, I think, have the ability to like evolve themselves into a dominating species that's superior to, to the masses, right? If they can only afford it. Wow. If, if these types of technologies are become part of the commonwealth, then it can be extremely beneficial for society. So we can't just wait for technology to help us, and we can't just like let things be, because letting things be is the status quo, and that will lead to dystopia. So apathy is pro-dystopia, I think, in the scheme of things. And that's why, that's really what drives me to realize, like, holy crap, the human race is at stake here, because we're dealing with psychopaths and antisocial people that actually are going to lead to a very bad situation and we have to create enlightened governance. We have to create an enlightened culture or we're screwed. And the alternative is, or everything will be freaking amazing to imagine, you know, a Star Trek zeitgeist speaker, you know, with post scarcity. That'd be awesome. We have to fight for that. Right. Well, uh, it comes down to us getting the message out and creating a model. So maybe that's where local movements do come into play is, if we, I mean, remember uh, Canada's national health care program started in Saskatchewan by, I believe, Kiefer Sutherland's grandfather. And I think Trump is a big 24 fan. So if somebody could just get Kiefer to sit his ass down and be like, dude, guess what? My grandfather is the most beloved human being in Canadian history, which he is. Tommy Douglas, I believe, because he gave Saskatchewan and subsequently all of Canada their national health care system. So if we try things out. Yeah, I mean, I know single payer is, is on the table right now in California. So. Exactly. That's that. And, and you know what? Even Obamacare started as Omnicare in Massachusetts. Right. I mean, it's a whole laboratory. And I think that that was part of what the founding fathers actually kind of were designing purposely was like these laboratories of democracy, as, as it's been called. You know, retrospectively. Well, and you called real quick earlier, uh, I think you kind of called like um, the Democratic Party sort of center right. And Obamacare is a perfect example because the more progressive solution would have been single payer or universal coverage. And it was actually the Heritage Foundation. A lot of people don't know this, that first formulated uh, the Affordable Care Act. And Nixon was even down with it. But I think Ted Kennedy at the time, you know, he was going to hold out for a public option, and I think Lieberman fought it as well. But just imagine if we had had the equivalent of Obamacare back during Nixon, how much further along we'd be now. So that's why I tend to be a fan of, you know, moderation and compromise, because it's a hell of a lot better than having nothing. You know, I think that the, the, that era of, of the 20th century leading into now was a specific era of, of the height of the, of the U.S. and the winning of the West, right? Because World War II could have ended with 
with, uh, you know, a fascist paradigm, quite literally. And, and uh, after that, we could have ended up in a, you know, harsh communist dictatorship type paradigm. Uh, but we happen to be in the paradigm of liberal democracy that we've taken for granted. So in the 90s, a book came out called The End of History. This guy, Francis Fukuyama, wrote a thesis basically saying that all the economic and government systems of the world have officially been tried, and now history is finally over, and now the whole rest of the world from, from you know, the early 90s to infinity will be liberal Western democracy with a capitalist system. He's like, that's it. It's done. And now it's starting to look, if you're starting to see, if you really see what's going on around the world, that uh, Fukuyama has probably proven wrong. It, it, the, the rise of extremism will rise as neoliberalism, uh, liberalism starts to fail big time. Uh, and you start to see rising uh, nationalist populist movements, uh, uh, you know, uh, possible uh, economic crisis and collapse going forward, which will only exacerbate the matter. Uh, racial issues are reemerging. Uh, that could lead to more social dis- uh, a cohesion of uh, coming apart. So we have to look at what the other possible alternatives going forward will be demanded. And I think you're going to see fascists start fighting again. You're going to see communists and fascists fighting. Uh, and you're already starting to see hints of that. These Berkeley Antifa versus Trump supporter fights, it's like you're starting to see the seeds of this type of environment and the collapse of the world order uh, around us. And I think it's only the embers in the beginning, or the, or, you know, it's not even the spark. I think that, that we're going to see very interesting times ahead. That out of chaos rises order, and I think that from that, if the enlightened of us are willing to fight as hard as the uh, racists and the apologists for the elite are willing to fight for their side, then we can come out victorious. But it's not going to be kumbaya. I really don't believe so. We have a real revolution on our hands. Definitely. We're in it for the long haul. Interesting stuff. Yeah, certainly uh, such a rise of extremism on both sides. It's a little bit terrifying. Definitely makes me kind of miss for the good old days of like Bill Clinton and Bob Dole shaking hands on the debate stage. And now it's like, you're going to jail if I win. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, that that was very telling. I mean, it's it's a a paradigm shift. Um, But you know what? Here's the thing. I'm not pessimistic, actually, right? Because the system itself and its mediocrity was due for an overhaul. We weren't it. The, the system that Bill Clinton and Bob Bill resided over wasn't going to ever take us to the um, post-scarcity, you know, zeitgeist Star Trek type world. Itself. No, it was the status quo. Right? It was never going to do that. It was always just going to stupefy the masses and enrich the elites uh, ad infinitum. The thing is, is the way history unfolds is, is Every dog has its day, and you have rises and falls of empires, and rises and falls of them. You have the uh, the masses that grow angry as the elite hubris becomes unbearable. I mean, this is just the way history unfolds. So I think we need a breakdown of our comfort level, because the comfort level and the center-right policies, as opposed to the far-right policies that were perceived as left-wing policies that placated the left, that was a intravenous sedative. It was a drug that kept us that kept us stupefied and willing to be happy for Obamacare and happy for a little minimum wage increase. It's like no, 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 no. You're not thinking big enough. Let's freaking 
create a new system and actually manifest a new reality that is really ideal. And it's not a pipe dream to do this because we have the technology, we have the theory, we have, we have the vision if we can just organize people to see it together. And all we have to do is have the will and just manifest it. And it'll be shocking the amount that I think that humans can accomplish within a few decades if they think like this. Yeah, that unrealized potential. I think that there is something to be said for change by degree, uh, gradual change rather than radical change. But that's a whole nother can of worms. And, you know, I think this is really interesting, the whole Phoenix theme. Because, well, my my understanding is, you know, you're talking about um, it's kind of the end of an era. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically like every 500 years, it's basically this new dawning, you know, the egg hatches open and it's this, um, you know, civilization gets this reboot. So like with ancient Greece and then the Roman Empire, the birth of Christianity, the rise of Islam and then the Renaissance. So it feels like, you know, we're right there kind of overdue for something new. So. I mean, what do you think uh, the new Eon looks like? Well, I, I put out another interesting one I learned about, just to preface it, too. In the year 1200 B.C., you had, like, the world order of, like, the Egyptians, the Hittites, uh, you know, the, the that world, the Mediterranean, and that all collapsed, and everybody went into the Dark Ages in that world, and they lost literacy, pop, uh, population decreased significantly, cities were abandoned, it, uh, trade grinded to a halt. And it was the Dark Ages for a few hundred years. What emerged from that? The Greek Golden Age. As you mentioned, the Renaissance emerged from the Dark Ages. So, yes, that's the Phoenix effect. And I think that when this next breakdown occurs, you're going to have some hard times, and you're going to have some, some evil people do evil things, and you're going to have some incredible people do amazing things. And I would like to have, uh, hopefully, faith in the latter that they can pull it off and all of us together can, can really manifest that vision. But I think it's going to look like you're going to, you're going to have uh, probably a more local system. You're going, to have a, you're going to have a very proactive type of mindset rather than reactive that, that actually has vision of where we want to be in 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years and, and proactively manifest scientific solutions. I think a culture of science, mathematics, engineering, philosophy – and uh, over superstition is also another really important one too. That's another uh, big obstacle that's holding us back. So cultural rationality, uh, an economic system that invests in every person, an education system that that basically turns every child into a ge- into a genius. I think that's technically possible with the right machinations, right? You know, why do some parents raise geniuses? Because I guess, you know, I guess they, besides the genetic stuff, I think everybody has an incredible amount of potential that's not uh, manifested in our current education system. So making a new education system, giving everybody access to that. If you hired the finest minds in uh, teaching and pedagogy and child psychology, and you said, hey, create an education system to create a perfect person, and then you applied that, school by school by school, almost like a Manhattan Project for the mind, right? Sure. Like a, a Apollo mission for the mind, right? Like a total education reboot, total banking and, and, and finance reboot. Uh, a new deal, but a new deal to create like 3D printing plants that can create a new industrial revolution so we can produce stuff and then you, and then the income from that 
start towards paying for basic income, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a, we can you can just imagine this golden age we can create with like a with like a 21st century fix, 100% green energy as well, no more fossil fuel use, that type of stuff. Sure. Well, I mean, I feel like now I need to do an entire show just on rebooting the educational system. It's just because um, I am a teacher and it's so horrifying sometimes seeing one kid who might be like treated like a dummy because he didn't get this one thing. Right. And yet, you know, who knows how gifted he could be if he had access to a drum kit. He could be one of the world's greatest <laughs> exactly. percussionists, but he'll never even have access to it. And it's like people of our grandparents' generation, they got to learn how to play the piano in public school. It is so bizarre to me, but I think yeah. people are getting it, and this is our revolution. And this takes us back to the very beginning of the conversation. You were talking about just this exponential momentum and whatever this this movement is also on a micro level the phoenix effect kind of works with with uh evolution i mean we went through the nomadic age which brought us into the agricultural era um and then into the industrial age and you look at how we're going exponentially down like bottleneck evolution it's like it took tens of thousands of nomadic years just to get to those thousands of agricultural years then it's only hundreds of industrial years before i guess now we're in the age of communications and it only took decades you know to get to this point and, and that's singularity right now so at some point in decades from now we're going to reach a critical threshold with ai and then we better damn well have enlightened governance because if we don't, then the wrong people will be in charge of that extremely powerful technology. And that's very worrisome. Right, right. When everyone was talking about 2012, <clears throat> it's like time for change. Well, I mean, I just thought I had to move, which I did. And it felt great. You know, it's like time for change. You know, something is happening. But really, um, I asked a really good friend of mine who's Mayan. And he was like, uh, well, first of all, clock's wrong. You guys' clock is all wrong, which is like, that's a whole nother thing, <clears throat> kind of phantom time hypothesis, you know, Gregorian calendar errors. But his point was, you know, really, it's just a suggestion. If you guys don't get your act together by this point, then you're done for. And you talk about this enlightened form of governance, and I think that was it. They may have been very small victories that specific year, you know, 2012. But, you know, definitely we did see uh, the majority of people change. It's like, oh, yeah, gay marriage. The majority of people are finally cool with that in this country. So whatever this next thing is, yeah, it's going to be a total paradigm shift. Good call. So, so I want to point out another thing. Isn't it crazy that, like, in the 50s, if you just went around, people would just throw around the N-word casually. Actually, around here, it's just literally how it was. And then decades later, that's, like, unthinkable. Like, yeah, there's subtle racism, and there's racism emerging in, 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 in other ways, but this blatant systematic racism where you could literally not let somebody into a restaurant and, and then lynch them in the open, and then within one generation, that's unthinkable. In England, you have a king that, you have an entirely Catholic nation, because the king wanted to get a divorce. Within two generations, the whole country was not only Protestant, but like having inquisitions against the Catholics. <laughs> right? So it's incredible. So the fact is, is like the average person, what, I think what you have is you have like the people that create the culture, you have people that input into the culture and into the mindset and people that have power. 
and then you have like the average person and I think that like literally you have you have like this battle of the memes, you have this battle of culture and what people are thinking about and the media, whatever. And there's people fighting for pro social and anti social things, pro elite and pro people things. And if the people can get convinced on a on a subject and then a, a fire sparks, boom, they're all on top of it. Like Standing Rock is a great example. All of a sudden, it's, it started from this indigenous resistance, and now people of all races across the entire nation are, are, are seeing Standing Rock as a symbol for resistance against the system. And all of a sudden, like this meme blows up in people's collective consciousness. And Rip- it's incredible how that works. Yeah, the ripple effect. I couldn't believe it last night when Amy Goodman was saying that Obama didn't even know about the dogs attacking people at Standing Rock when she was issued a warrant for inciting a riot. Um, But, you know, people caught that footage on their phones. Thankfully. And it was a young woman from Malaysia and Barack Obama first found out about the dogs while he was in Laos. And it's just, that's people power, you know? And of course it, the issue was not lost on him. Our first African American president, he did put an end to it. You know, he ordered uh, the the ease easement, I believe. So uh, boy, I wish we still had him. So I would like that type of that type of uh, enthusiasm now because people are saying screw Trump. People are saying we need a system change and whatever, or they're focused on identity politics, whatever. But I will say that if if we want to have a really effective movement, let's all get behind this public banking push, hashtag the public banking movement, add the stuff on Facebook, and get on board with that and then maybe make content for public banking, because I truly believe that this one thing is extremely clutch. It's going to move a lot of money out of Wall Street into local communities. And our vision down the line is, yeah, we're attacking the banking now, but you know what? Once we start to get the hang of what we're doing here as an activist organization affecting City Hall, we want to get people into City Hall. We want, we want, once we have that, it will be a lot easier to push legislation. And we want to keep on writing legislation that's enlightened and get it through City Hall. And, we, and that's the model we want everybody across every, the whole nation and their cities to do. Write legislation, get it through City Hall, create a movement, get people in City Hall, and you can be, you'll be amazed at how much you can do. And from there, we can change education, green energy, and all the other pillars that we need to attack after banking. Yeah. Hashtag public banking. All right. So what's next for you and how can listeners stay in the loop? All right. Well, what's next for us is right now we're getting this Divest movement passed. Right now I recommend everybody joins Divest LA to get on top of that. And if you're in another city, not only join that, but create your own if you can or get on board with a local divestment movement. Uh, get on board with a public banking option. See if there's anybody that, that, that's an activist for public banking or just start to spread that word. Um, if you're in the Los Angeles area, if you check out revolutionla.com or divest, or, I'm sorry, revolutionla.org or divestla.com, uh, there's a, there's a full uh, breakdown of what we're doing and who we are. And my email is phoenixgoodman1 at gmail.com, and my YouTube channel is Age of Reason on YouTube. Excellent. RevolutionLA.org and DivestLA.com. Check it out. So, Phoenix, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. This has been really interesting, and I'd love to have you on again in the future. I know that as well. It's always interesting talking to you on and off air. All right. Um, All right. Well, take care, and uh, we'll definitely be in touch. All right. Cool. Have a good one, dude. You too. Thanks again.